came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Saturday the 15th of May. 2021. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Today we have a fabulous interview for you with a wonderful gravitational wave researcher, Dimitri Chattopadhyay. Strap in while we zoom down to Melbourne, Australia. Enjoy. Hello, Dimitri. Hi, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thank you. And today I'm very pleased to be speaking with Debortria Chattopadhyay, an Osgrav researcher and doctoral research fellow at the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. Debortria is working on gravitational wave astrophysics and has also been awarded a place in Homeward Bound, a global leadership program for women in STEM and She's off to Antarctica next year. Thanks for speaking with us, dear Baudry. Thank you so much, Brendan. Now, before we talk about your fabulous gravitational wave PhD research, can you tell us where you grew up, please, dear Baudry? And tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. And I see that Jules Verne and Adrish Badham had some influence on you. Absolutely. So I was born and brought up in Calcutta or Kolkata, which is in India, eastern zone of India. So my native language is Bengali. I was a very curious child, <laughs> always. So I questioned too many things to my parents, to such an extent that my father got so many questions that he brought me a series of this book called Tell Me Why which ranged from like array of different questions from history to science to geography. And both my parents had this biology background. So my father is a scientist. My mom's uh, higher education has been in zoology. So there was, a, there was a kind of a scientific background in the household. I was also into really cool adventure novels, thrillers, detective stories, and... When I was in the fifth grade, so about nine or 10 years old, I got in my hands 
this book called Journey to the Center of the Earth. So it's by Jules Verne and translated in Bengali by another sci-fi author, Audrish Bordhun. And I really, really enjoyed it. Before that, classroom science had been um, really like monotonous in a way. I enjoyed occasional things about say evolution or adaptation from my parents. But in general, the school curriculum, I felt really boring. So it was the first time through Journey to the Center of the Earth that I was really invested in the characters as well as the science, the little bit of interesting scientific tidbits I was learning. So magnetic poles, um, what is happening with temperature and materials, all these things. And then I slowly got into the sci-fi books, uh, mainly with Jules Verne and then Audrish Vorton had his own writings as well. So I started from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Carpathian Castle, Around the World in 80 Days, Mysterious Islands, and slowly through actually literature, I got involved into science. And at the same time in school, I really got myself interested in the smaller physics things that were taught as a science curriculum, not as a separate subject physics, but there was Archimedes principle, livers and simple machines. And I really enjoyed those chapters. So I guess that was kind of the beginning of my introduction to physics rather than physics as a subject. Um, yeah, so that's how it started, I'd say. Fantastic. Cool. Thank you. So please tell us a little about those school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? Absolutely, Brendan. So initially, I wanted to be a detective when I was in primary school, then I thought I should be an author, then I wanted to be an archaeologist, a lot of things. Uh, but then physics was introduced to me as a subject in my seventh grade. And I just knew this was it. So we had a problem. There was a vacancy in our school. And the school couldn't find a permanent teacher. So in a span of, say, a couple of months, we had five or six teachers changed in physics. Even in that kind of unstable situation, I read the textbook, there were some higher educational books from my parents' era in physics, some popular science books, and everything together, I really excelled in the subject without having to put a lot of effort. It just meant, it just meant something and it made sense to me, in a way. So I realized that this this was it. I have to be a physicist. It was so interesting to me. And consistently, I was the topper in the subject, even though the subject was divided into chemistry and physics, physical sciences whole. And I was never the topper in chemistry, but my marks in physics were always like nearly perfect, making me the topper in physical science consistently in school. Then it was around ninth grade that I got this chapter on black holes. I was learning about pulsars, quasars from all these, all these books. There was this uh, popular science series I would learn from the articles. But I saw this chapter on black holes and I read it and it was so mysterious. I think it turned my curiosity of, you know, being a detective and not knowing what is there. That made me think, okay, this is cool. I want to do physics and I want to do astrophysics. So by the time I was, say, 12 or 13 years old, I had decided <laughs> this is what I wanted to do. And I've been putting a lot of hard work into it. And I've got good mentorship that allowed me to actually study in this field. Fantastic. That's great. So 
After that successful school career, you earned your bachelor's degree with honours in physics from Scottish Church College in the University of Calcutta in India. Then you moved a couple of hours away to the Indian Institute of Technology in Karagpur, where you got your master's degree in physics with a focus on the general theory of relativity. Then you moved down to Melbourne as and you are now working on your astrophysics PhD at Swinburne University of Technology. Would you like to tell us about your study focus moving from physics to astrophysics and that move from West Bengal down to Melbourne? And can you tell us how you were inspired to enroll in your PhD at Swinburne? Yes. So, yeah, I got into physics as was planned. Um, I always wanted to do something in astrophysics. So I kept that in my mind. And uh, then during my master's, I took subjects that would help me later. So my special subjects, as you mentioned, were general theory of relativity, introduction to astrophysics. I did my summer project in astrophysics. My master's dissertation was in astrophysics as well. At the same time, while I was doing my master's, there was the first announcement of the detection, first detection of gravitational waves from two merging black holes by LIGO. And you can imagine as a master's student, it's really, really exciting. So our department, like the students, had our department t-shirt printed with the signal, with the gravitational wave signal at the front. Yep, yep. <laughs> So it was like a dream coming true. You know, I've always been interested about black holes. Okay, I'm doing my master's in physics and okay, there's this first detection, everything falling together. And 2015, it was actually announced in 2016, but 2015 was also marked, it was celebrated across the world for 100 years of general relativity. Uh, so there was this buzz already going on in the scientific community. And then I was looking for PhD positions and I actually had multiple offers from different parts of the world, but the one in Swinburne was the only one in gravitation waves. And at that time, only a couple of gravitation waves were actually announced. So some people just told me, okay, maybe this is a little bit of a risk. Maybe you should go with traditional astrophysics and astronomy and choose other opportunities. But I always felt this passion towards this kind of unknown thing and I came to Australia I really enjoyed my interaction with my current supervisor Jared and after I joined Swinburne just within three days there was this discovery of GW170817 which is the first detection of two neutron star merging through LIGO, as well as there were follow-ups by traditional electromagnetic astronomy. So this is uh, one of the primary starting points of multi-messenger astronomy in gravitational waves, as well as electromagnetic radiation. So this was phenomenal. And I joined the LIGO collaboration as well within a couple of months. And in October, 2017, the Nobel Prize in Physics actually went to the detection of gravitation waves. Yep. Uh, so I think I, I, took, I took a leap of, uh, let's say, curiosity in a way. And I'm really happy. So now after, say, five or six years, we have more than 50 confirmed detections of binary black holes to Newton stars merging. So it has been amazing. And Osgrave has been so wonderful. 
that yeah, I, I think I made the right decision. Fantastic, thank you. Now, just before we go all sciencey and talk about pulsar surveys and black hole and neutron stars mergers and your other gravitational wave research for your PhD, would you like to tell us a little about your trip to Antarctica that's coming up next year? And I'm just wondering if you'll get a chance to look in on the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory and are you raising funds to help pay for the trip? Yes, Brendan. So this is a part of this global leadership program called Homeward Bound, yep. which aims at training um, 100 women every year in a span of 10 years. So we are the sixth cohort and they want to pick women in STEM. So science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine, and give us the encouragement as well as a tool to nurture our leadership skills. And uh, the motto of this program is Mother Nature Needs Her Daughters. So there's a twofold goal here. One is to train uh, the women in STEM. And the second part being to encounter the climate crisis the world is facing. I won't even say near future, but facing right now. We can see its effect all over. And it's only going to get worse if we are not very serious about it. So we are already into this program. And uh, this will be an online training uh, for one year. And we are doing the master classes every fortnight. And... Uh, towards the end of the program, it will culminate into being a three-week voyage in Antarctica. It will start from Ushuaia in Argentina and then will voyage on a ship. I'm very excited again, some adventure novels <laughs> and yeah. everything, into Antarctica. And we'll be trained there with this face-to-face -face conference. And the importance of Antarctica is, again, twofold. So firstly, of course polar ice caps are melting and the climate change and pollution, its effect worldwide is very much apparent. And Antarctica being one of the pristine environments, used to be what is known as the pristine environments, yep. the changes are very predominant over there. And the second part is that that is basically, arguably, the only continent in the world uh, that is not owned by any country. That's technically not owned by any quote-unquote human civilization. So it shows what human beings can do together for nature if we don't force ourselves into wars or greeds or anything. So yeah. I think it's very symbolic and it'll be a lot of soul-searching there. Regarding Ice Cube, I've been following Ice Cube for <laughs> a really long time, but uh, since this three-week voyage will be very much focused um, on the leadership training and the aspects of the climate crisis. I don't think we'll actually get a chance to visit Ice Cube. Said that, I definitely try to. Uh, yep. Yep. Very good. And perhaps in the show notes at the end of the episode, I might add a link for if people want to help. I know it's very expensive to help pay for the trip. Now, I see that you're well into your PhD and I've tracked down a lot of your papers already and I presume you're doing your PhD by publication. So are you on track and how's it going? Yes, so I am doing my PhD by publication. I have two first author papers accepted. 
and I have multiple sub like co-author papers as well. Um, it is moreover on track. There has been some delays due to COVID and the problems encountered by everyone last year. Nobody was prepared for it. But other than that, I plan to submit in a few weeks time, hopefully. So that is the situation. I'm actually really enjoying writing my pieces, to be honest. I was initially very scared. But uh, I don't think it's that scary or anything. It's actually everything is coming together. And the science question uh, that I was trying to answer three and three and a half years ago is it's forming the answers that things that I've learned, the skills that I gained in the last few years, they're all coming together. And yeah, that's that's kind of the situation. Very good. Okay, thank you. Now, we know that many PhDs often have great mentors and supervisors. Would you like to tell us about some of the people who've supported your career and your research directions? Absolutely, absolutely. So beginning, of course, with my parents. I had a huge influence and support from both of them, especially scientifically. Right now, during my PhD, my supervisor, Jared Hurley, is incredibly supportive. My co-supervisor, Simon Stevenson and Matthew Bales, they have guided me throughout and uh, they're still helping me to understand so many things. I work with Simon quite a bit, uh, learn a lot of things from him. There are other people who have influenced my career in Australia include Chris Flynn and Ilya Mendel. I've, again, learned a lot of things from them and their perspectives and how to approach science in general. Uh, about physics... I'm really, really grateful to my undergraduate teachers, the professors I had in Scottish Church College and Indian Institute of Technology, Kharagpur, especially mentioning Joydeep Mitro, Arup Roy, and Shubhata Prati Khastagir, Shrayan Kaur, Konuk Shaha, Nirupam Roy, Shomitra Shengupto, and Amal Kumar Dash. Uh, I know there are a lot of names. But without them, I would have had no knowledge of physics and no idea where I'm going. So, yep, I'm incredibly grateful to the guidance I've had so far. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Now, our listeners will be quite aware of gravitational wave astronomy from our previous episodes with Osgrave researchers like Professor Matthew Bales, one of your supervisors or mentors, uh, Dr. Fiona Panther and Shayan Chatterjee and Shanika Galertigay. Uh, but let's do some science now and look into your PhD work itself. Can you paint the big picture of your PhD research and what are the big questions that you're looking at? Yes. So our uh, listeners might be aware from all these incredible Ozgravers before that during this LIGO era, the main gravitational waves that we are actually observing are coming from the merger of stellar mass black holes. So basically two dead stars, they're merging over a period of time and there is this vibration, the ripples across space-time uh, that is being emitted and then they reach Earth and LIGO is detecting these objects. So my thesis focuses what we call as double compact objects. So compact objects usually mean either a black hole or a neutron star. So basically dead stars. 
And double compact object is when they are a binary. So either two black holes or a black hole and a neutron star or two neutron stars. Yep. So I study the astrophysics of these objects and understand where the signals are coming from, from what environment, in what situation did they merge? What can be the mass spectrum of these observations? What's the spin when these things are merging? So basically decoding the astrophysics, theoretically, of all these uh, double compact objects. Now it can tell us a lot of things, including what environments these merge in, what is the relative ratio of these formation channels of these extreme coalescences. There are correlations of these detections or observations to a host of different things, including what we know about our galaxy evolution or the globular clusters, which is a small spherical collection of stars, which are observed to kind of rotate around a host galaxy. And the more we have detections, as we are getting now, the more we can finesse our understanding of the universe better. And my job is to theoretically predict these mergers get feedback, get input from the observations uh, that are happening and then correct my physics and give new predictions. So it's, it kind of goes on a cycle. I use the All-Star supercomputer um, at Swinburne to run my models, to do all the mathematics over there. And then LIGO has more detections and it kind of goes side by side, this thing. Oh, that's astonishing. Fantastic. Thanks, Devotri. Now, Looking at your publications, I had a look in ResearchGate in the archive server, and I found your first author papers and some others that you collaborated on. You've been incredibly busy, and we always ask a couple of technical questions for listeners who like to put their propeller hats on when they listen to an episode. So could you talk us through some details of a particular paper or other part of your research that you're working on? that is driving you crazy or is astonishingly exciting or both? I think both of these two things, astonishingly exciting and going a little crazy, go hand in hand <laughs> in certain ways. Uh, so definitely, yes. So recently I've been working on something called pulsar black hole binaries. So what are pulsars? Pulsars are neutron stars. So again, they're dead bodies of stars, not quite as big to become black holes, but big enough, let's say. These dead stars, these neutron stars, they can spin faster than a kitchen blade. And their size can be as big as Melbourne. So something, a spherical object as big as Melbourne, spinning faster than kitchen blade, that's incredibly fast. So these pulsars, as they're spinning like this, uh, they also emit radiation, usually in radio wavelength, from its two magnetic poles. And whenever this beam points towards the Earth, we detect a flash in yep. radio. So it's kind of like a lighthouse, let's say. Yep. And these are very accurate clocks of the universe. So this uh, movement is very precise, um, as good as atomic clocks. That's quite fascinating. So the thing with pulsars is that we observe pulsars in the vicinity of ourselves. So mainly our own galaxy and maybe the large Magellanic cloud or the small Magellanic cloud. So quite close to us or the Milky Way globular clusters. 
we cannot detect them very, very far away. Whereas with LIGO, we of course are detecting extra galactic sources of mergers. Now, I have been trying to think what happens if we have a binary with a pulsar and a black hole together. What will happen? Now, of course, these things are incredibly rare. A lot of things go into it. How stars evolve. There are very precise mass ratios that are required. The history of the two stars interacting, all these things make them quite incredibly rare. However... We are having, of course, incredible gravitational wave detectors, as well as amazing radio telescopes like the SKR Meerkat, which are expected to observe these systems in the next few years or the upcoming decade. So I did a theoretical study of these pulsar black holes, and I predicted their, say, mass spectrum spins or magnetic field or their formation history and everything, and tried to understand these objects from two points of view. One, of course, from radio of the, these pulses coming from the pulsar, but B, also from gravitational waves. What will happen when they merge? What are we expected to see from the signal? What will happen to the merger remnant? What will be the spin of the merger remnant? And this is quite important because the science community is not going to stop at LIGO. Of course, LIGO is going to get updated in sensitivity quite frequently, but we'll have uh, new instruments, including gravitational wave detectors up in the space called LISA, somewhere in the 2030s. And with LISA, we can observe these pulsar black holes in our own galaxy. We are expected to observe them. At the same time, you can imagine we'll have these radio telescopes, as I said, say SK, which can have multiband observation of the same systems. So that's incredibly interesting because we won't just hear this system, but we'll also see the systems. And there's this whole important information that we'll uh, obtain from the data that will help us to understand the universe. And that's what we are trying to do. So doing this analysis from two sides of things, traditional astronomy as well as gravitational waves has been incredibly interesting as well as a lot of hardcore understanding of the selection effects of how things evolve. And yeah, so that is my recent projects and one thing that has been in my mind uh, for the last few months. That's fantastic. I think they should name the first one after you when we get a black hole and a pulsar merging. You've predicted that they're going to do it. And with the SKA, ASCAP, Meerkat, Uh, LIGO and Virgo, and soon we'll have, well, relatively soon, we'll have LISA up in space as well. I'm sure they'll find one. I think they will too. We just have to be a little bit more patient. And and (laughs) honestly, if they don't find it, that's also something that means uh, we need to understand, we need to finance and correct our understanding of astrophysics. So even no detection tells us something that we need to change our understanding. So it's a win-win situation, I'd say. That's beautiful science. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, let's diverge a little bit now. We could um, talk about perhaps... Look, you're a big exponent and trained in Indian classical dance and We love to mix the arts and the sciences. They should go hand in hand more. 
Tell us a little bit about your life in Indian classical dance. Yes. So, as I said, my mother also had her higher education in science, but she was also a dancer. So when I was a child, I watched her performances and it was incredibly attractive for me. It looked so beautiful and glamorous from the stage. So when I was three and a half years old, I was enrolled um, into dancing. And I started learning this Indian classical dance called Manipuri, which is named after the northeastern state of India, Manipur. It's incredibly interesting because there's a mixture of influences from North and South Indian dance and drama culture, as well as uh, because Manipur sits in the border with Myanmar, a lot of influences of other Southeast Asian dance forms like Thai, for example. So the body movement, there's a lot of torso happening and the motions of arms. it's, It's like undulating, watching a wave move. And I received my diploma in classical Manipuri dance as well. And there are a lot of different parts of Manipuri dance, one being really ancient. So the local people who have been inhabiting the lands of Manipur for thousands of years, their folklore has been imbibed in dance form. Um, Their beliefs about cosmology or how life evolves has been imbibed in these dance forms. And it's so much into the culture that in weddings as well as funerals, there are rites that involve dancing from both men and women. Another part of history where certain religious beliefs traveled from central India to eastern India, Bengal, a part of it, traveled to Manipur and got intermixed with the already existing dance forms there. So it merged together in a form of spirituality, let's say, when people dance there and express themselves. During the early 1900s, there was another revival of Manipuri dance by the Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, He was from Calcutta. He was also the first Nobel laureate from Asia. He attended a Manipuri dance program in Silhet, which is in modern Bangladesh. And he was very much inspired by it. And there was a revival of this dance form under his patronage from that era. I have been trained in Manipuri dance for over 15 years, as I said, from since I was three and a half years old. And though after moving to Melbourne, I have not been able to actually practice it or attend a class or something, but I still read about it or watch videos, sometimes practice by myself, because for me, in a way, it clears my mind and actually allows me to do a lot of soul searching. I also learned a few other dance forms, including cha-cha, belly dancing, everything when I came to Melbourne. And yeah, I really, really love dance. Fantastic. Well, you'll have to let us know when you get around to doing a performance and I'll bring my family down. We come down to Melbourne quite regularly and we'll come and watch you perform. Thank you. Thank you. Another thing I wanted to add about Manipuri dance is that apart from the spiritual aspect of thing or telling actually stories, love stories or folklore through dance, there's also martial art form 
that's very much closely related to this dance form called Thangta because Manipur is a border state, right? It had a lot of history of wars and everything. So both men and women in this very, let's say, poetic dance form or martial art, they were all trained to fight with swords sometimes, sometimes with long spears, sometimes freehand in Thangta. So Manipuri dance is not just dance. There are different aspects of it, including uh, martial arts, like war martial arts. Fantastic. Okay. Well, at this stage, we'd like to wish you good luck for the rest of your PhD. It sounds like you've got a great research trajectory and the teams there at Osgrav and Swinburne at their Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing and working on that um, huge supercomputer sounds like so much fun. It might be good to mention here now how the current worldwide COVID-19 crisis has impacted on your studies and your research. And it might be a terrible question to ask at this stage, but you may also like to mention the impact on yourself and your friends and family back in India. Yes, absolutely. I guess uh, no one in the world was really prepared for this pandemic to happen. And um, initially, as everyone, we were kind of a little disoriented, not sure what is happening. And it has definitely impacted the scientific community, our productivity in, in different ways. But at the same time, I would like to mention that we are incredibly lucky as astrophysicists that we don't need to access the laboratory. We can work from home. Yes. So that has been, let's say, a privilege that I did not know I had. And it's always good to remind oneself to be grateful for things. So that has been one aspect of it. Of course, I've had uh, some delays in basically finishing my thesis and everything like a lot of other students. At the same time, I've been incredibly saddened at what has been happening worldwide. And it, it shakes our fundamental understanding of how society functions or how wealth is distributed or what privileges are. Regarding the situation in India, of course, like everyone else, I'm really upset and scared and disappointed at the leadership, both state and centrally. And that kind of reiterates the importance of having a leadership training, to be honest. Yep. Uh, I, real, I, really, I really hope that things get better over time. Um, it is stressful to live in another country and have your family and friends in, in a very different situation. But I really do hope that we'll be able to overcome this. Indeed, yes. We have to... Well, as just happened today, hopefully the patents on the vaccines will be distributed a bit more fairly. And we can only hope that that's going to happen. Now, I also know that you do great outreach work as a member of the Osgrav outreach team. And I just watched one of your physics of gravity presentations on the Osgrav YouTube channel, and it's fantastic. Can you tell us? about your passion for outreach and what's coming up next for you and why is outreach so important to you? Uh, so for me, outreach is a way I can reach to the society and 
educate them as well as give them the fuel to have this curiosity about science. It's incredibly important as a human civilization to be scientifically minded in general. Also, I had this huge benefit from outreach. So back in the 90s or early 2000s, there were TV shows, of course, but all these books my parents got me. And I didn't know the names back then, but the first article I read about pulsars in my early teenage was written by Anton Hewish. Or I learned uh, different things about the universe from an article by Cecilia Payne. Of course, I didn't know their names back then. But because these scientists wrote those articles, I was interested to learn more about these objects. So it's, it's kind of my way of giving back to the society that supported me so far. Also, at the same time, throughout my interaction with different people in this outreach programs, I have been amazed by the incredible questions uh, I have encountered that made me think so much. So yeah, and then I was trained really well uh, by the Osgraph outreach team. So especially mentioning Lisa here. And because I had this support, because I had this encouragement, I think it really fueled my passion even more to uh, reach out to people in general. I, I've done quite a few different types of outreach, ranging from the general audience to school students. One that I really enjoyed was the State of the Universe lecture by Swinburne uh, that happens in the National Science Week. And I spoke about gravity and black holes, and it was very well received. And it felt very emotional at the same time because I was talking about this object from human perspective of how our knowledge about gravity evolved from, say, Isaac Newton to, say, the, the Event Horizon Telescope image of black hole that was released that year. And to have an audience who shared a similar passion and to have this feedback made me actually realize how to convey science to a general audience. So yeah, and I really, really love public outreach and I really hope that I can uh, continue this in, in the future as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll look forward to seeing your next video or your next gig, Deboetry. Now, the mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science, in equity, in representations of diversity or in science denialism or career paths or your own passion for research or our human quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours. Thank you, Brendan. I think I'm incredibly grateful to life for giving me the opportunity of studying something I really wanted to study as a child or a teenager. And Looking at science, it's, it's like standing at the bank of an ocean. And even if I can contribute a little, little tiny droplet to it, I'll, I'll think my life has been worth living. If yep. not, I'm incredibly grateful that I can study the universe. The, the mere joy of knowing new things, of learning how nature functions, it's absolutely amazing. I think that joy in itself is one of the best things of being a scientist. In the upcoming months, Isabel and I, so Isabel, my friend uh, from Osgraph, she's also doing this Homeward Bound Leadership Program with me. 
We have been writing a book, so a coloring book about uh, women in science, and we are going to publish it very soon. So it not only has the biographies of these incredible women scientists over thousands of years, but also there are tidbits about the science that they discovered. So children can actually color their favorite scientists, learn a little bit about the biography, also learn a little bit about science. So that's one thing to keep an eye on. Very soon we'll have that. At the same time in the modern world, I feel scientific mindedness is incredibly important. It's a way to guide us through the petty problems humankind encounter with wars or uh, their greed. It's beyond everything. The, let's, let's say that's a form of truth uh, that we learn from nature, that if we stand together, we can discover so much. We can progress human civilization in such an incredible pace. Because if you look at the Industrial Revolution that happened a few centuries ago, and then slowly we, we have reached at a point in history where we are sending people on moon. We are sending this incredible space missions. So there's so much to look at. There's so much to discover. We are like this tiny, tiny, just tiny, tiny things in front of this entire big universe. We are so insignificant. And this um, nature, how science uh, functions, it's so big compared to what we really are. So makes us feel really humble and uh, go beyond our um, everyday problems or fights. Uh, yep. <laughs> it's fantastic to hear the excitement in your voice when you talk about the nature of science. Thanks, Deportree. And I'll be keeping my eye out for the colouring book because my nieces are very keen colourists and they've got a lot to learn and hopefully um, you'll be inspiring some young people to join the world of science. And also, I'm hoping to interview your friend Isabel later in the year. Now, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? I'm basically waiting for Lisa. You know, it's, <laughs> that it's not technically near future, but on the large scale of things, it is near future. Uh, so Lisa is the space mission, uh, as I mentioned a little bit, uh, of having a detector, gravitational wave detector up in the space. Yep. It's really cool because you have these, it's an equilateral triangle uh, formed by just laser beams. And... This is going to rotate around the sun at the same distance from the, but it's so big. These arms are so big that uh, one arm length is about 6.5 times the distance from earth to moon. Mm. <laughs> we are going to do the gravitational waves from the early universe. So we can look at the history of the universe, detect all these incredible sources which we cannot see, let's say, by the current gravitational wave detectors by LIGO and Virgo. But uh, with LISA, we'll have different aspects of uh, physics coming together. So not just astronomy and astrophysics, but there will be parts of cosmology as well as particle physics all tied in together. So I'm really excited about LISA. That's really exciting. It sounds like, it sounds like you're describing... Um the gravitational wave equivalent of the cosmic microwave background, but doing the same thing with gravitational waves. 
that's actually a really really great comparison brendan yes that's that's as cool as that it might completely revolutionize our understanding of the universe it's that big yeah <laughs> sensational well thank you so much dear bortri chatapati on behalf of our listeners it's been really fabulous speaking with you and thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule and Congratulations and good luck with nailing your doctorate. And if listeners want to help with some funding for your leadership challenge with Homeward Bound, they can go to tinyearl.com forward slash debisofund. That's D-E-B-I-S-O-F-U-N-D. And thanks, Debautri. Thank you so much, Brendan. I love this conversation. <laughs> Bye-bye. Have a good day. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And another great Astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez-Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website. And we'll see you next when Ian returns with his monthly Skywatch for observers and astrophotographers. Radio